I want you to know up front that Mark 15 is a chapter full of darkness. When we think about this darkness, it's so surprising that Mark 15 is such a dark chapter because it begins in the morning. It says in Mark 15, 1, as soon as it was morning, as these people are gathering around Jesus, they're, they're bounding, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. The story begins in the morning. It should begin with light coming into the day. The way Mark has structured chapter 15 is so fascinating because Mark, well, he wouldn't have thought of it as chapter 15. We have it as chapter 15. The way he structured this section, Mark loves the number three. He's obsessed with grouping things in threes. And the way Mark has set up this section is he set it up in these three-hour intervals. And so it begins here with 6 a.m. or so as Jesus is bound. And then by 9 a.m., Jesus is on the cross. By noon, it's completely dark. By 3 p.m., Jesus is dead. And by 6 p.m., Jesus is in the grave. And so you see the way this is set up. It should be a chapter where light is breaking onto the scene. Instead, it becomes a chapter of darkness. We see the darkness as these political leaders begin and religious leaders begin to bring Jesus in and put him on trial. We see the darkness that happens as his friends have abandoned him in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see all of these forms of darkness that are happening here. We see Jesus brought before Pilate as the sun is coming up. However, there are some days that seem so dark and so difficult that we sometimes wonder if the sun should have even bothered to come up at all. Some days that are so dark and so evil and so much pain, we wonder, how are we going to make it through this day? Here's what's fascinating. At the birth of Jesus, light burst into the sky in the middle of the night. At the death of Jesus, darkness takes over the middle of the day. At the birth of Jesus, light fills up the sky. And at the death of Jesus, darkness overtakes the day. At the death of Jesus, we see that by noon, the skies are completely dark. We see the darkness that's developing in this story. We see the darkness of these weak, manipulated political leaders. We see the darkness of an angry mob. We see the darkness of a criminal who has been set free and someone who is innocent is charged with death. We see the darkness of mockery as the king of kings is abused and shamed, as he's insulted and cursed. We see the darkness not only of verbal mockery, but we see the darkness as Jesus is violently beaten. We see the darkness of the beatings and the crown of thorns and the cross beams. Jesus would have been whipped in a very violent way leading up to the crucifixion. A whip with extensions much longer than this one with pieces of glass, not plexiglass like this, but, but real glass and metal on the end that were designed to go into the flesh, to tear back the flesh, to take the person right to the edge of consciousness and death. We know that Jesus would have had a crown of thorns placed on his head, adding to the mockery and adding to the agony. We know that in the ancient world, crucifixion was designed to bring shame, public shame on the person. Here's Jesus 
who's never been concerned about his possessions, having his garments taken away from him and divided up by the soldiers. Here's Jesus, the one who created the world, having all this physical pain inflicted on him. Crucifixion was for criminals and slaves and enemies of the state. And here's Jesus undergoing that pain. On the way to the cross, Jesus would have carried the horizontal crossbeam. The vertical crossbeam would have already been in the ground, and he would have carried this horizontal crossbeam, remember, already having been beaten, already having the flesh torn off his back, already having this robe placed around him just to be torn off to make the pain worse. He would have carried this crossbeam up to the point that exhaustion and pain finally caused someone else to have to step in and take that crossbeam and carry it all the way to the cross, where when he gets to the cross and he's hung there, instead of using ropes to hang them, they use nails and drive the nails into his wrist and most likely into his ankles, hanging Jesus on the cross in such a way that every breath would have been unbelievably agonizing, but he had to take the breath so that he didn't die from suffocation at that time. And with all of that physical pain, with all of that physical pain, he also has the weight of sin on his shoulders. My sin. Bearing my sin on his shoulders. And in that moment, with this physical pain and emotional pain and spiritual pain, he feels abandoned by the Father, but he refuses to take any type of drink that would mute the pain. He continues to cry out to God in prayer. And then finally, we see the darkness of his death. We see the darkness of burial. As his eyes are closed, he's taken down off the cross. He's wrapped in these linen garments. He's placed in a cave, and a stone is rolled over that cave, and it's dark. And we need to feel the darkness of that moment because we still live in a world with so much sin and so much pain, and so much brokenness, and so much death. We live in a world of darkness. We know what it feels like to be betrayed by someone. We know what it feels like to be abandoned by friends and family when we need them the most. We know what it feels like to live in a world of darkness with weak, manipulated political leaders. We know what it feels like to live in a world where an angry mob can get its way, especially when that angry mob has a keyboard. We know what it feels like to live in a world where people mock the God of the universe. They mock his grace and they mock his judgment to come. We know what it feels like to live in a world where people are insulted and shamed and cursed by other people. We know what it is to live in a world where guilty people are set free and innocent people are put in prison. We know what it feels like to live in a world with the darkness of violence. With with a world where the darkness of violence goes into places that it shouldn't go. Into schools and into workplaces and into our homes. Homes that look really great on the outside but you get behind closed doors and it's not happy. 
It's full of pain and difficulty and brokenness. We know what it feels like to live in a world with the darkness of anxiety and depression, feelings of hopelessness and fear. And we know what it feels like to live in the world with the darkness of death, the death of unborn babies, the death of unwanted elderly people, the death of people involved in war, the death of people caught up in natural disasters, the death of loved ones who are gone too soon. We know what it feels like to live in a world of darkness. And so many times when we see that darkness in our world, it brings up this question. How could there be a God who exists when there's so much pain and difficulty and suffering and darkness in the world? You probably asked that question or you've been asked that question by someone else. If this world is so dark, how could God exist? And let me just tell you, that is not an easy question. And we don't help anybody by giving cheesy, simple answers to those types of questions. But here's what I do know. The king of the universe, on Palm Sunday, sat on a donkey, and he rode right into the heart of that darkness. Because we have a God who is near to the brokenhearted. And we have a God who saves those who are crushed in spirit. We have a God who doesn't run away from the pain and the darkness and the brokenness of our world, but came and took that pain upon himself, dying for us in our place. And on the cross, a place of ultimate darkness, light began to shine through. At the cross, we see this tension between the darkness of the world and at the same time, the fact that there's light and hope to come. At the cross, light begins to break through. And so what I wanna do for you this morning is we are gonna work our way through Mark chapter 15. And along the way, in a chapter full of darkness, I want you to see little beams of light that come out in this chapter. I want you to see how in your own life, in your own world where there's so much pain and brokenness and darkness around us in this world and in your life, in your home, I want you to see how the light of Jesus always shines through that darkness. Look back at Mark chapter 15, verse 2. It's going to be a little hard to see in your Bible, but the verses are up here on the screen as well. Verse 2, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Meaning, yeah, you said it, but you don't understand what you're saying. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. In verse 5, we see the first moment that light shines into the darkness of this chapter as Jesus is silent before Pilate, silent before his accusers. Jesus' silence in this moment is an example of wisdom that we all need in these times. When you live in a dark world, when you live in a world where people insult one another, curse one another, shame one another, everything inside of us wants to speak back into that, try to explain that suffering, try to respond to that suffering, but Pilate is amazed here at how Jesus is just silent in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of those insults. We know from Philippians chapter 2 that if you want to shine like a star in a dark world, all you have to do is not participate in the grumbling 
and complaining and arguing that goes on around you. Philippians chapter 2 says, don't complain. Don't argue. Don't get involved in these disputes. When everybody around you is raging, when everybody around you is mocking, when everybody around you is caught up in this darkness, there's incredible wisdom sometimes in just keeping our mouths shut. (laughs) That light shines into dark places when we don't grumble, we don't complain, we don't argue, when we trust that God's at work in a way that goes far beyond anything that our words would be able to help in that type of situation. Verse 6, now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed, committed murder in the resur- insurrection, not resurrection, but committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Let's talk about Barabbas just for a second before we go past that. Barabbas is a fascinating figure when you look in the other Gospels, what we find out about Barabbas there's a chance that his name means either son of the teacher or maybe even son of the father, which is fascinating. We have Jesus coming as the son of the heavenly father, and here Barabbas is son of a father as well. Barabbas here would have either been some type of military revolutionary figure who's fighting back against the Romans, or Barabbas is almost like a Robin Hood figure. There were these figures who were involved in social banditry. They would go out and they would try to fight back against the Roman Empire and get things to give to other people, and they were always causing trouble. And so Barabbas is somehow caught up in a rebellion against the Roman Empire. And then it says there in verse 8, the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And so he answered them in verse 9 saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Surely there's been a mix-up, and they want Jesus back. Verse 10, he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Beam of light number two in this story is that a rebel is released. The rebel Barabbas is released and Jesus remains in captivity. Now why is this good news? The reason this is good news is because I'm Barabbas and so are you. This is good news because every one of us is caught up in the slavery of sin and death. Every one of us is imprisoned by sin and the fear and the reality of death. And the only way we are set free as rebels against God, the only way we can be saved, we can be set free, is if another takes our place. And one did. Barabbas was set free because Jesus was condemned. And friend, the only way that you can be set free from sin and death is because Jesus has been condemned in your place. He has died in your place. Sometimes we're tempted to say, man, the world just isn't fair. I wish life was fair. Can we thank God that life is not fair? If life was fair, we would be in a lot of trouble. But life is not fair. 
God has poured out his grace and his riches upon us. And one of the ways we see that is because of what happens to Barabbas in this story. A rebel is released, and because he was released, Jesus died. And because Jesus died, we as rebels against God can also be set free. Next verse, verse 15, middle of verse 15. Having scourged Jesus, this is the, the, the beatings and the whippings he would have taken with the, with the lash he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. At the Good Friday service, we're going to talk about more of what it means that they mocked Jesus. Verse 21, in the midst of the situations, they lead him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Beam of light number three is Simon of Cyrene coming in to carry the cross. Now when you hear this language of Simon of Cyrene taking up the cross of Jesus and carrying it to the point where Jesus will be crucified, your mind might go to what Jesus told his disciples. What did Jesus tell his disciples? To take up our cross and to follow him. Simon here seems to become a model of those who will follow Jesus, who will come alongside Jesus in his suffering and will walk with Jesus on the way to the cross. Simon is a beam of light in an otherwise extremely dark part of the story. Simon's an interesting character here. Let's talk about Simon for a second. It says Simon of Cyrene. You're like, I don't know about Cyrene. Where's Cyrene? Cyrene is actually located very close to modern-day Libya in North Africa. Which means, and we have to be careful about this, we don't know this 100%, but there's very likely the case that Simon would have been a dark-skinned African man. He could have been an olive-skinned Jewish person who was born in Israel and then spent some time down in this North Africa area because there were lots of Jewish people that were living down there at this time. But just as likely, we have here with Simon, a dark-skinned African man, who's coming in at the time of these festivals, and he's brought along here to carry this crossbeam for Jesus all the way to the point of Jesus' death. Here's the other thing that's interesting about Simon. If you look there in your phone or Bible in verse 21, it says that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's really surprising that the names would be given there of Alexander and Rufus, Almost certainly the reason their names are mentioned there is because they become key leaders in the early church. That Simon and Alexander and Rufus, Paul even mentions a Rufus in Romans chapter 16. And there's some thought that this Rufus may be the same one mentioned in Romans 16. We don't know that for sure. But what you do have happening here is at the point of Jesus' pain, Simon is brought into the story and he carries the cross for Jesus to the point of his death. He becomes an example of what it looks like to take up our cross and to follow after Jesus. And then just one more piece to this story with Simon. Simon is a Hebrew name. Rufus is a Latin name. And Alexander is a Greek name. So bound up in this verse, you have 
the work of the cross, the ministry of Jesus going to the Jewish people, going to the Romans, and going out all throughout the world because of this Greek name. You have a picture of what the cross of Christ is going to accomplish. Verse 22. Verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, so around 9 a.m. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in the three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. You feel the irony in that verse? The only way he can save others is by not saving himself at this moment. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour, when noon had come, there was darkness over the whole land for three hours until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Beam of light number four in a very dark part of this chapter is this curtain that's torn in two from top to bottom. There's some debate about which curtain in the temple was torn at this point. So there was a large outer cur curtain that people would pass by to go into the holy area where the sacrifices were made. And then there was another curtain that was put up that only the high priest could go through one time per year to go into the Holy of Holies. And so we don't know for sure. The argument for it being the outer curtain is it would have been a very public display of God's power in this moment. The argument for being the inner curtain to go into the Holy of Holies is that when the author of Hebrews is picking up this part of the story, the way the author of Hebrews describes this sounds very much like it's the curtain that separates where the high priest would have gone into that interior Holy of Holies. Either way, either way, the point of this is that God's glory and power is rushing out into the world, and at the same time, the people of God are invited to come into the presence of God without any need for a priesthood or a sacrificial system, that God is changing everything at this moment. And here is my favorite part of this portion of the chapter. The word for the curtain being torn open in Mark chapter 15, that word for tearing something from top to bottom, the way the curtain is torn, that word is used one other place in the Gospel of Mark. And it's in Mark chapter 1, where at the baptism of Jesus, it says that the sky was torn open and that God spoke down, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The two times that something is torn open in Mark's gospel, 
the power and word of God speaks into that situation. And we see the glory of God poured out and the way people are able to respond in that situation. What happens at the baptism of Jesus is mirrored at his death with this curtain being torn open and we are able to come to him. I was talking to somebody this last week about how as Christians we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that way of praying is found right here at the cross, that we are able to come to the Father because of what Jesus has done for us, because the power of the Holy Spirit has spread out into all the world, to all people who experience his salvation. Look at the next verse, the very next verse. It says, verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Beam of light number five. At the darkness of Jesus' death, who understands what's happened? It's the complete outsider. It's a Roman soldier who understands and responds. All throughout the gospel, we've been looking for someone who would understand who Jesus is and respond to him, confess who he is, confess him in faith, and who do we find out? It's not a disciple, it's not any religious leader, it's a Roman soldier. A reminder that the cross of Christ is meant to draw all people to faith. The cross of Christ would be something that all people would confess, yes, Jesus is Savior and Lord, that a light shines in a dark place. People see that light and they respond. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph and Salome. Little point there. This is kind of to the side. <laughs> I've heard people say, when you're talking about whether the Bible is true or not, like, can I believe the Bible? I heard somebody say one time, there's no way if somebody was making up this story, they would have included this many Marys in the New Testament. Like, there's no, like, if you're looking for, like, how do I know the Bible is true? Like, how can I, how can I believe this? This wasn't like a random story that was made up. There's no way you're going to include this many Marys in the story. Like, it causes so much confusion about who you're talking about. But here, these women are there, and verse 41, when he was in Galilee, these women had followed him and ministered to him. That word ministered is the same verb that's used in the New Testament for the verb for deacon, for serving. These women had ministered to him. They had been involved in, in following Jesus. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Beam of light, number six, light shining into the darkness of a dark chapter, is these wonderful women who are involved in ministry to Jesus, who... When all the guys have gotten scared and run away, these ladies are still present, still involved in the story, still ministering, that in the darkness of the cross, we see women who are faithful to Jesus, following him, doing ministry. One of the things I love about Emmaus is that we have ladies who say, I'm going to be there. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to show my family what it looks like to follow Jesus. I'm going to be faithful to him through so much difficulty. They set such a beautiful example of what it means to continue to follow Jesus even in times of darkness. And then finally, verse 42. When evening had come, probably around 6 p.m., somewhere in that 3 to 6 p.m. range, when evening had come, 
since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, the same council that would have voted for Jesus' death, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, this Joseph took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Beam of light number seven. Here's Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Jesus and burying it in a way that shows incredible dignity and honor toward Jesus at this moment. Remember Simon of Cyrene? Simon's role in the story is we don't know if Jesus is going to make it to the cross. And so Simon comes along and carries Jesus to the cross. What's Joseph's role in the story? We don't know if Jesus is going to make it to a point of burial. If like most bodies on the cross, he's just thrown to the side of the road or, or put into some type of mass grave. Instead, here, Jesus is placed into a tomb in this cave so that his resurrection will be so distinct, so obvious what has happened. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. Joseph of Arimathea, who would have been this wealthy religious figure, he has the courage to go against the rest of the council and say, I want to dignify, I want to take the body of Jesus and place it in a grave. Even at the moment of Jesus' death, light is shining forth from that grave. When one of our kids, who will remain nameless, uh, was younger, we were doing one of those things that I'm sure Cody and Megan have done with their kids before, where the room's getting a little bit dirty, and you need to make some things disappear from the room, but you would rather your kids not see those things disappearing uh, from, from the room. And so, you know, we, we pulled out some what we would have called junk, they would have called treasure uh, from, from the room. And so we, we pulled this out, we stuffed it in trash bags, and we sat it in the kitchen next to our, our main trash can. And that night, one of our kids came in and said, the trash bag is glowing. We're like, What? The trash bag is going like, this can't be good. Well, in the process of pulling things out of their room, we had managed to stuff some of those little lighted sticks into the trash can. And in the process of stuffing things down in there, it activated. And so it looked like at night, trash bag was going. So we were totally found out what we had done, <laughs> taking these things out of their room. Even in the darkness, even when the light is buried, what will happen? it will still shine through. In the darkness of our world, in the darkness of your life, in the darkness of Jesus' grave, the light still shines through. He's brought to this point of burial, but soon he will be raised from the dead. Think about baptism. Think about what is symbolized in baptism. You may be here this morning, and God has brought you here this morning because you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus Think about that imagery of baptism, what you're showing someone. That we place the person down in the water as an image of burial, an image of death. But then that person is brought up out of the water to show that they have life 
because Jesus died and rose again. Think about the Lord's Supper. We're going to end our service today by taking of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the brokenness and pain and sin that's in our lives and in the world. But the Lord's Supper also reminds us because of Jesus' brokenness, we are able to have life. When we receive him, when we receive his body, when we receive what he has done for us, not just in taking these elements, but when we receive him in faith, we receive light and life into our hearts, into our lives, so that we are able to go out into the world and be light in a dark world. Here in just a second, I'm going to pray for us. After I pray for us, we're going to come and we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper, remembering what Jesus has done for us, remembering the power of light in a dark world. Come and take these elements as an act of worship, remembering what Jesus has done for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you see it mainly as a story from long ago that people enjoy, but you can't see how it applies to your own life. If you have questions about following Jesus, as soon as we're finished this morning, I would love to talk with you about that. If you're here this morning and you've never been baptized, think about the burial of Jesus. Think about the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate this week. Is God calling you to do that, to show what he's done in your life? Let me pray for us, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we know we live in a world with so much darkness and pain and difficulty, and some people just feel that more intensely than others. God, we, we see that in the story of Jesus. Mark 15 on the surface is just a very dark chapter. But God, we know that in those times of darkness, the light of the gospel shines so brightly. Father, thank you that in a dark chapter, you show us glimpses of the gospel. You show us glimpses of how your son is at work. God, you show us what it means for us to be light in a dark world. And fathers, we prepare for Holy Week. As we take the Lord's Supper, as we think about coming back this week for prayer, as we think about Good Friday, as we think about Easter to come, God, remind us that your light has shone into our lives so that we could go out and be light in the world. God, use this time of taking the Lord's Supper, draw people to salvation, draw people to baptism, draw people to recommit their life to you. God, we give our lives to you at this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.